Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Yay, we're back. Oh my goodness, you guys, I have missed this so much. I've missed sitting here doing this. I've missed doing the research and I've missed uh, getting to, to to hang out and chat with all of you, the loafers, loafers, loafers. I'm taken with the notion to love you with the sweetest of devotion. We are back. Um, I wanted to make this a special episode because I've been gone and the best way I could do that since none of you are here was to just dress up for the audio recording of this podcast. So here I am in my new thrift store three-piece suit my bow tie, my hat. I'm uh, here to record a podcast. I'll, I'll post a picture of it because I think I look pretty funny. But um, yeah, we let, we are here for Luke 15. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter of the book of Luke. Uh, part of the reason it took me a while to sit down and actually get this done is because I haven't had a lot of time lately. I've had a lot of stuff at work and at home. And I wanted to make sure to, to give this a lot of attention because it's just some of the central, central stories um, that a lot of us take away from the book of Luke. Um, so I want to do it right. And so here we are. I'm in my suit. I'm ready to do it right. Real quick, the only housekeeping thing we have is that uh, we are still working really hard to get ratings, reviews, and shares for the podcast. And so we we made prizes. We tried to keep them a secret, and that didn't work very well. So now I'm just going to tell you what they are in case that uh, encourages you to leave us a rating or a review or a share uh, uh, on the Facebooks or on iTunes or elsewhere. Um, we made pins. We made cool uh, two different pins, a lo-fi lectionary one with our cool logo on it that you can wear or put on a bag or whatever. Um, we also made one that says, Kevin thinks I'm five stars. Cause I think you're, if, if you supported the podcast, I, I think you're awesome. It, it warms my heart to know that people actually like something that I'm doing creatively in the world. And, uh, that even if you don't like it, that you'll, you'll be willing to support it anyway, um, just because of who you are and you're a nice person. So I made you a button that says, Kevin thinks I'm five stars, um, to show everybody that, Hey, I have a guy, I know a guy named Kevin and he thinks I'm a five star person. So if you leave a rating or a review or do a share of any, uh, anywhere on social media or something like that, or if you do something creatively and you mention the podcast to your audience or something like that, let me know. I'll get your mailing address and I will mail you one of these pins so you can be a proud wearer of that. And that's the only thing we have. So we are going to go ahead and jump right in the story of Luke 15. Uh, this is another, uh, just to put it in context, this is going to be another teaching section. There's going to be a little story set up, and then we're going to jump right into some teaching. Oh my gosh, good, good stuff in today's episode. Let's go right for it. And the text starts off just like this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So just a quick break right here. This is a little introductory phrase. So, uh... Uh, you know, th th there's a dinner, um, and it's being used as a device by Luke to set up the next part of the story. Uh, we've seen this before, you know, they have a symposia, you know, there's some, there's a, there's like a meal going on and people are coming together to also listen to some teaching. There's different audiences there with different purposes and different groups, stuff like that. Um, and it's going to introduce a whole block of theological teaching where Jesus is also going to use his own device of telling stories to illustrate things about God. So this is a very uh, typical thing. You didn't just kind of like go right into it. Well, God is like this, you guys, so you should do this or that. Um, it's like, well, let me paint a word picture for you, which is which is kind of neat. Um, so uh, 
And in this context in particular, we have two different groups identified as being there to listen to Jesus. Um, we have these tax collectors and sinners. Now, keep in mind that tax collectors and sinners, um, when they're identified as a group, these are people that were excluded from religious community because of either being, um, you know, political traitors or something like that, or as religious, you know, traitors, people who went against, you know, the, the, the way things were supposed to go against the laws and stuff like that. Um, but these people are coming to listen to Jesus. They There's something about Jesus that these people keep coming to listen to him. Isn't that interesting? Like there's something about him, that there's something that he has or that he's doing that they want. And so uh, this causes a bunch of the Pharisees and the scribes to grumble. It says, I love that word grumbling. You know, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Um, they're upset. And, and, and this could be over a number of reasons. Um, it, it, dining, you didn't dine with people who were excluded from the religious community. Remember, you didn't socially identify, which which when you ate with someone and sat and, and hosted a meal for them or went over to their hosted meal, that meant that you were identifying with those people. And you didn't do that. Um, just, just, just for the message it would send, first of all. The second thing was there was even a religious reason. Um, if you if you met with people who are outside of the religious community that was accepted by them, um, you might end up eating food that wasn't tithed properly, you know? Um, so, uh, everything you had, you, you were, you were supposed to tithe some for as part of the religious system. And if you went over to sinners houses, that mean that they weren't tithing, you know, or certainly a Gentile's house, because if they didn't, you know, um, so, you know, worship the same God or go to the temple, you know, weren't part of that religious system, then the food might be untied. There might even be unclean food. It might be prepared improperly, stuff like that. So you just didn't do that. Um, moreover, there's a bunch of Proverbs uh, in their religion that warns you about doing that. It, it's just like, it's not wise to hang out with people that are bad people is kind of the general idea. I mean, you, you, you would hear parents, you know, telling their teenagers today the same kind of thing. Um, so it's against like the popular conventions of the time of just like, this is a good thing to do for yourself. Um, but also just uh, being around people who are identified as sinners might send the message to them and to the rest of the, the, the community that, that you accepted them. It would be assumed that you were saying what they were doing and who they are and how they were living their life was okay. And so if you were a good religious person, much less a good religious teacher, a rabbi, you didn't accept sin. You know, um, so you stayed away from those people. But Jesus doesn't care. Um, Jesus will eat with Pharisees and not accept all of their ways. And he'll go and he'll eat with tax collectors and sinners and not accept all of their ways. So Jesus does, just doesn't have the same presumption that like, hey, if I go eat with someone, it doesn't mean that I'm a fully agree with everything that they do, but I'm going to go anyway because he's showing favor of them. So this this whole problem over, you know, is, is really kind of a debate that's been ongoing through the book for a while of just who has access to God and who can receive God's favor and when in their life are they allowed to receive it fairly or justly or something like that. And so, um, this sets the scene for now Jesus to tell a series of parables, you know, of little word pictures, little stories, um, that are always supposed to be a little bit surprising and are supposed to teach something about God, um, as we go. So, uh, let's go ahead and dig right into the first parable. It goes like this. So Jesus told them a parable. Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays the sheep on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. 
there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So this is the first little parable. Um, We commonly call it the the parable of the shepherd. And that's actually a good title for it, I think. We're going to talk about parable titles as this chapter goes on. Um, But a couple interesting things right off the bat. So if you are a Pharisee or you are a high class person in the society and in the religion, you did not consider shepherding a clean and good profession. It meant that you were out with animals, which meant you got dirty and part of their religious system and their social system was about, about remaining clean and pure, stuff like that. And so therefore you were kind of constantly unclean. And uh, I mean, so even more than that, it just wasn't a, a job that was high on the social status as far as like how much you got paid and what kind of work you did, stuff like that. You were out in the wilderness, man, you know, <laughs> like you, uh, you weren't part of even the regular household system, stuff like that. So right away, which is interesting because Jesus uses a shepherd as not only just at first being a stand-in for a person, but really as being a stand-in for how God is treating people. So if the shepherd character in this story is the God character, Jesus intentionally picks the God, a profession for the God character that would be hard for these Pharisees and scribes, for these high-class, fancy-pants religious people to identify with. Because it's hard for them to identify with an unclean wilderness you know, shepherd. And yet Jesus is like, oh, that's what God is like, <laughs> which is just a really clever thing that Jesus does. I dig it. He's he, he's always upending the apple cart and he's flipping the system on its head. Um, so he identifies God as being like a shepherd. Um, and so right from the get-go, this is a hard story for these Pharisees to hear because Jesus is like, well, you think you identify with God so closely, but this is what God is really like. Can you identify with this God. And so the focus is on the lead character. It is called the parable of the shepherd. And what happens is, you know, they have a hundred sheep and one gets lost and they will leave the 99 in the wilderness. Now, if you were a shepherd at the time, you traveled in a pack with other shepherds and other herds and stuff like that. So what's probably going on is that this, this shepherd is like, is, is, isn't just leaving, it says in the wilderness, but that usually meant it would be presumed that they would leave those sheep kind of in the care of another shepherd. Well, they go and search for one. I mean, and, and it's kind of hard to tell if that would be a surprising thing, because on one sense, it is like, what, really? You would leave 99 just to go find the one? But on the other hand, if they're a shepherd, it means that they've been put in charge of like a landowner's sheep, which would mean that they better bring all those sheep back, you know? Um, so I don't really know if that part is surprising, but they do go and they do everything they can to go find this one sheep. And when they found it, they put it on their own shoulders, which is a very intimate, close act, but that is how you would carry a sheep at the time, um, especially if you wanted to keep it from going and getting lost again. Um, but this but this God character is being very intimate with the lost thing, putting it on its own shoulder, and rejoices themselves. And then they go home, and the impetus goes like this. It says, they've, they found their sheep, and the parable ends with them inviting their friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then that's it. That's where the story ends. So the, the story leaves with a little bit of a rhetorical device that's kind of like a question. It's Jesus saying, this is what God is like. He goes and he finds what is lost. And then he invites everyone who wants to be his friend and his neighbor to celebrate that the lost thing is now found. So Jesus is kind of answering the question, well, does God, who does God favor and who's in and who's out? Well, God, you know, favors the repentant folks, but he also seeks the lost ones out. And so Jesus is kind of of defending his own actions here. I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners. 
because that's what God does. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of seeking out sinners and lost folks. And so if that's what God is like, then everyone else has the opportunity to respond as they see fit. And in the parable, the context, it's that, well, if you're friends and neighbors with the shepherd, you should go and celebrate. And so Jesus is is telling them like, hey, if you're friends and neighbors with God, if you're really close to God, if you assume your own connection and identification with God, then you should be rejoicing here as well. And so the, the, the parable ends with that kind of open question because the the now the impetus is on the Pharisees and the scribes to decide how they are going to respond. He's calling them to action. Will they celebrate God's favor upon sinful and undeserving quote unquote people on dishonorable quote unquote people on people who don't deserve it? Um, and if they don't, they're not friends and neighbors of the shepherd. Let's go on and continue on in the next story. We're going to see how this develops. So here's the next parable. Or what woman having 10 coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So... Very similar to the last one, but there's a couple little differences. One, the value of the object that's lost increases. So in the last parable, it was one sheep out of 100 sheep. Now it's one coin out of just 10 coins. And the character changes. So in the last parable, the God character was a shepherd. In this parable, the stand-in for God is a woman. And so a good title for this parable might be the parable of the woman with coins, <laughs> you know, or something like that. So we often say the parable of the lost coins, but that puts the puts the focus of the parable on the inanimate object and not on the, the main actor. So I'm going to argue that that's not the greatest way to title it. But so we get the parable of the woman with the coins. And again, this is a, um, a questionable character for Jesus to identify the God character with, at least at the time in the culture. Don't hear me wrong there. Um, because high-class religious people at the time, what we know from their writings and from their thought was that they were not impressed with what they considered the moral character of women to be. Um, like, like women were not looked upon as just as, as good morally, religiously stuff like that as men were. And so therefore did not have as high of status, but here, Jesus, just as how in the last parable, he picked a shepherd, an unclean person, um, to be the God character. Now Jesus I, is, picks a woman to be, you know, the God character. And he's, he's doing that intentionally. He's really instigating action on, on behalf of these Pharisees by doing that. He's picking characters that would be on purpose, that would be difficult for them to identify with. He's trying to wake them up to something new about God. He's presenting, he's saying, oh no, no, God isn't really what you thought. God is quite different. He's, he's like a shepherd. He's like a woman. And this woman, um, you know, has 10 coins. This is likely if this is the woman's money and she considers it her money, it's likely her dowry. Um, and it's the gonna, and her dowry would be the only money that she brings into a marriage or a household. And it would be the only money in the household considered to be hers that she can choose what to do with. And so she's been saving it apparently and cuz she still has 10 and 10 coins would be a poor person's dowry. And it would imply that she married into a poor family, likely from a poor family. Um, and one coin back then would be one day's wages. So all she has to her name is just 10 days wages. 
And that's all that she has. So not only is God a woman, God is a poor woman, which would, again, be more difficult for these elitist folks to identify with. Now, the coin is lost somewhere in the house. And this is actually a really common thing. I thought this was kind of an interesting historical note. It doesn't necessarily change the the way that we read the story, but... um, Coins often, um, ha- uh, the floors in houses back then were made from rocks that were put into the ground together and then kind of loosely sealed. And so there would be cracks between all the rocks. And losing coins between rocks was a popular problem for people. Um, it was such a popular problem that archaeologists, when they unearth like old households and stuff like that, will often date when the houses were lived in and were made by what coins they find that were lost between the cracks in the in like the rocks in the floor. So that's just kind of interesting. So this would be a common problem um, that she's lost a coin, and she only has ten. So she's desperate and frantic to find this coin. It says that she sweeps the floor. She she lights a lamp. You know, so she's burning oil like to find it, which would mean that maybe into the night that she's looking for this, she's sweeping the floor and she searches carefully until she finds it. So just like the shepherd who will keep looking until they find the sheep, this woman will keep looking until they find that coin. And so, um, you know, she's been sweeping the floor. She's been, she's been looking carefully between the cracks and stuff like that to find this coin. When she does, she responds the same way the shepherd does. She calls together her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Um, so again, the theological point here, the God character is going around seeking, searching, finding, is desperate, you know, into the night, is looking for the things that are precious to them. You know, the, the, these coins are precious to the woman's. They are hers. They're, 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 they're all the money that she has in the world. And Jesus like, these people are all that God has, kind of, in a sense, in the world. They are precious to God. God is seeking them out. And you, who consider yourselves friends and neighbors, have the opportunity to rejoice or not. It ends with an invitation. We don't get a little wrap-up where it's like, oh, like the the lady called, oh, please come rejoice me. I found the coin. And all of her friends and neighbors got together and they had a big party, you know what I mean, or whatever. We don't know what happens next. And that's intentional, like in the way that Jesus is telling the story. And let's now see, as we go into the third story, it's going to change even a little bit more, but we're going to still carry on a lot of these same themes. And Jesus is going to intentionally tweak the story even further for his audience. This is going to get fun. Let's go. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me a share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between the house and the younger son. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. So let's pause right here. So the value, again, of the thing that will be lost is increased. In the first story, it was one sheep out of a hundred. The second story, it was one coin out of 10. Now you can like, like picture if you were diagramming the story that there, there's like a big point and it's getting smaller and smaller as it goes, as the focus gets more and more closely intent. Cause now we have one son out of two. Also interesting to note, we've moved from passive objects to active ones. I mean, in the first couple stories, you get a sheep, which is just a piece of property. You get 
um, a coin, which is just a piece of property, one that is precious to the owners, but still just a, a you know, a, a basically, you know, either an animal or an inanimate object. Now it's people. So the story's more complicated as the things get more and more precious and as the things that they are change. And so in, in households at the time, you had an inheritance system. And if you had sons, um, sons would all inherit part of the household. Now, your first son would get a double portion of whatever every other son got. So if you had four sons, you would you would think that you would split the household four equal ways, but you'd actually have to split it five ways and give two-fifths of it to the, the, the firstborn son. Because they were seen as as kind of like a junior head of the household to carry on the household's name, stuff like that. So if this, if this father... Um, is a landowner, because um, they have property, um, had two sons. The first son is entitled to two-thirds of the household when the father dies, and the younger son is entitled to one-third of the household when the father dies. They would stay in their household and live on their father's household until the father dies, then they would divide whatever, whatever happened. Um, and so, the younger son comes and says, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. It doesn't belong to him yet. It's the father's household. It's the father's property. But he's coming and asking for it now. And this action of asking for an inheritance before the death of the father was an unheard of action. I mean, it would be kind of weird today, but back then it would be even worse. Back then, it actually sends a social statement. It says, Father, I wish that you were already dead. You are dead to me. So just give me what's coming to me. Um... And so you could, this is kind of interesting in the context of Jesus had also has made some teachings earlier in the book where he says, Hey, if you're going to follow me, you need to love your family less. You need to, you know, you need to hate father, mother, brother, sister, stuff like that. And if you don't read those carefully, you can take that idea of, I need to hate my family to follow Jesus the wrong way. And here Jesus kind of introduces the wrong way to do it because this son is a bad guy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and so if, if you walked away with a really weird idea of what Jesus meant as, uh, as far as hating your family earlier, the story can kind of serve as a, as Luke's maybe correction of it a little bit, but really that's not what the story is here for. It's just kind of a side note. This son in coming and saying, I wish you were dead already. Just give me my inheritance is a serious act of dishonoring his father and a serious act of rebellion against the household and against the religion and against the social structure. So in the religion, in, in one of their earlier books, you know, in, in one of their books of scriptures, it's called Deuteronomy. There's a book of laws and in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's a law that goes like this. If someone in your house, if one of your children is a glutton, is a drunkard or is rebellious, the law says Take that child out into the community and stone them to death. Get people together to throw rocks at this person until they are dead. And it says, thus shall you purge the evil from your midst. And all of Israel were here and will be afraid. So lots of things that Jesus is kind of reacting to here. The ideas of fear, the ideas of stoning people, stuff like that. But the proper response, according to their own laws that come in their text, they say they come from God, is that if someone acts like this, the father's proper response is to take this, this snotty, awful, awful son out into the community and say, this is what he did, everyone, grab the rocks. And they all just start pelting this kid with rocks until he dies. That's the proper thing to do. That's the wise thing to do. That's the right religious thing to do. 
Um, and the father in this story breaks from convention, breaks from wisdom, breaks from the religion itself, breaks the law and divides the property and gives the son what he wants, which is really interesting. Um, so there's an image of God in Deuteronomy that these laws come from, that it's be afraid. Like thus shall all Israel hear and be afraid. You need to purge evil from your midst. Jesus all along in the book of Luke has been telling people to not be afraid of God and has gone and hung out with sinners and rebellious folks and gluttons and drunkards and has even been accused of that himself. And now tells a story where the God character um, divides the property. So again, he picks an image for God and sets God up in the story to be this father that would be difficult for the Pharisees to identify with because this person isn't wise, this person isn't right, this person isn't doing what's, what's just or good according to their own religious laws if you take a hard reading of those religious laws. Like, I'm sure um, there is, you know, debate going on about how to actually properly, you know, um, put those laws into practice and stuff like that. But if, if, if you follow the letter of the law, man, like, this guy is doing the wrong thing, and that would be difficult for them to identify with in the same way that a shepherd and a woman was difficult for them to identify with. Um, like, good religious teachers would hear this story And they would think that the father was stupid and lax to pamper an immoral son this way. And that it was actually not just something bad for their family that would bring dishonor to their family, but that was bad for the community in itself. They're not creating a world that God wants by treating their younger son this way and giving him what he asks for. It's really interesting. Um, So the son, after he gets his property, goes away to a distant country. He goes to a foreign land to live with foreign people, to live apart from the tribe, the nation, the household, the religion, the people. He goes far away. So the son has actively chosen not to identify with, with, with God's people, you know, if he's left the household and the community. And he's gone away, and it says that he squandered his property in dissolute living. Squandering what you have. I mean, keep in mind that people back then lived in absolute, most of them lived in absolute crushing poverty. So to squander any little thing or to squander your whole inheritance was actually like a morally evil act in the community. And that's exactly what this son did. So first he does the morally evil act of dishonoring his father and telling him, I wish you were dead and departing and abandoning the household and the people. Now it's not like he went away to, to go do his own thing and to build a good household somewhere else. He then just squandered everything that this father and their family system through the years and through the generations has worked to achieve. Like this, this kid, if you're hearing this story in the ancient context, this kid is just awful. Like, like, Oh, he's just like the worst you can imagine, like, you know, a young rebellious, you know, son to to be like, he deserves death. You know, like if you're hearing this story correctly, you're getting angrier and angrier at this kid and you're actually getting angrier and angrier at the father for letting this happen as it goes. Um, and just a quick note, um, you know, it says he squandered his property in dissolute living. So he's continuing this dissolute glutton drunkard kind of living that the law says that you need to punish. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. When the son had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. The son would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So he's he's spent he's he's squandered everything. He's still continuing to live in the foreign country with foreigners, and now he has to be hired himself out to to a foreigner of the land. So he's really just he's he's lost everything that he could have inherited, not only just from his family but from his culture. And he's working with pigs, which would be an unclean animal and stuff like that. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on in the story. But thinking of the way that teachers, moral and religious teachers at the time, both in Israel as well as in the wider, like, Greco-Roman world, told stories to illustrate points. This right here is the natural end point for the story. Like, the hearers in Jesus' audience would have expected the story to end right here. In fact, we have records of similar like Jewish moral stories from the time. Like or in the wider Greek world, like you have the fable of the grasshopper and the ant and it's like that ant works and works and works and saves and saves and saves and is wise and does not squander. The grasshopper is lazy and squanderous and doesn't pay attention to the weather and stuff like that and doesn't work and doesn't save and here comes winter and that ant is safe and that grasshopper is you know whatever happens to grasshoppers who don't save food for the winter. You know what I mean? Like harsh, real truths for living in a harsh, real world. Like the moral story should end right here. And Jesus's audience should cheer that this son got what was coming to him. You know, um, this kid is now getting what he deserves. He's dishonored his father. He's dishonored his city. He's dishonored his country. He's dishonored his God. And now he's lost everything and he's feeding the most unclean animals according to, you know, their religious customs. He's not even earning fair wages. Like if he's eyeballing the pig food, it means that whatever he's working, he's kind of being cheated by his boss, that he's not earning enough to, to eat well, like if he's envious of the pig food and stuff like that. And it says, and no one gave him anything. Like people are harsh with this kid. And everyone you could think at in Jesus is like nodding right here. They're like, yeah, that's right. Like this person is cut off from the Jewish community. He therefore cannot receive charity from his home, you know, from his religion, from his brethren that he grew up in. He's He's made himself a foreigner and he's getting what's coming to him. And you would think that the story should end here, according to the to the way that they think the world works. But it doesn't. Here's what happens next in the story. But the son came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he has a plan. (laughs) And this plan is to go back home. And it has like this weird, like, it's, 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 it is a kind of repentance. It is a kind of apology because he says, I have sinned against father and against you, but he doesn't like say he's sorry. You know, he doesn't say it was, it was, I'm, you know, like I'm please, he doesn't ask for forgiveness. 
Um, and the impetus, the reason he's doing this, like it's revealed, like his inner thoughts are revealed. Like how many of my father's hired hands have enough bread to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. He's not going to go back and repent and apologize because he's sorry. He's just hungry. Like if you're an audience, if you're in Jesus audience, you would hear this. And again, you'd be like, this kid is a poop. You know what I mean? Like, oh my, like, it's so presumptuous for this kid to think that he can go back and that this father would even treat him like a hired hand. Like he deserves death if he goes back home. And, and yet he knows like how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare. Like he knows that his dad is not only like a generous person, but a good boss. Like here he is in the foreign country being, being cheated by foreigners by unclean foreigners, and he knows he can go back, and that his because because his father's workers have bread to spare. Like the dad treats workers better, that reveals something about the dad. But he's being presumptive. I'm just gonna go back, and I know I like he presumes that his dad might treat him like one of his his hired hands at least. Like he doesn't have expectation of much. He just wants to fill his belly. Um. And his only hope is maybe he, he at least realizes that he's, he's sinned enough that he can't be a son again, but he can be a hired hand. Um, you know, uh, and, and that term hired hand, uh, just, just in the historical context, could it be like a lender, a, a rented laborer, like a day worker, you know, like you would, you would, you know, pick up workers for, for whatever jobs you had going on that day, that week, that season, it could be a free servant, um, you know, like an indentured servant or something like that. And the fact that he has a lot of hired hands and he feeds them really well suggests that this father is, is extremely wealthy, um, or at least moderately well, you know, is, is very well off, you know, because he has hired hands, he feeds them well, he has enough property to spare, um, stuff like that. And so this is this kid's plan. I'm going to go back. I'll say, I'm sorry against heaven. So he sinned against God. And before you, I've, I've wronged you too. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Let's see what happens next. So this boy set off and went to his father. And while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion he ran out and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So this is the next little move. And while this son, he's got his prepared speech. He's walking home. He's got no more sandals. He's got no more robe. He's hungry. And while he's still far off, the father saw him. It suggests active watching on the father's part, because um, you don't imagine the father being out in the in the in the in the outsides of the fields, you know. And the father's response is now active in the same way that the shepherd and the woman was active. He's been watching, and now he moves. And so there's a problem with the title 
of this parable, it's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But the prodigal son from the, be- from the beginning and now in the middle is not the active person that Jesus is using to illustrate a truth. It's the father. So a better title might be, I would suggest, the parable of the father with two sons. In the same way that was the parable of a shepherd with sheep, a parable of a woman with coins, a parable of a father with sons. Um, because the focus is, isn't on the objects. The f- focus is on the God figure, or that's where it should be. Like Jesus is here teaching about the nature of God, not really about the nature of people so much, but that the, the nature of God that Jesus is illustrating through all three of these parables invites and invokes a certain kind of response from people. Um, and so this father is watching and he saw him and he's filled with not anger and not fury, which would be the almost righteous thing to do or the wise thing to do. How dare he come back and show his face? He's filled with compassion. And it says he ran. Now running in their culture is a breach of dignity. You did not run unless it was an emergency. And if you were the father head of a household, you never, you didn't run ever. For for partially just because running itself was seen as a that's just like not something a, you know, a dignified person who moves with a certain air about themselves does. But in order to run, if he was wearing traditional clothes, meant that they had to like pull up their skirts to run. And that's something you only did if you were working, you know, like a hired hand. And so this father like hitches up his robe in his hands and he runs. Like this father again dishonors himself, which is really interesting. Um... And then he runs and he puts his arms around him and he kisses him, kissing and, and embracing this way is a sign of intimacy between people. When you welcomed people, you know, into your home, into your household, on the streets, stuff like that, you would embrace them and give them a kiss of welcome this way. And that's the first thing he does to his son. And the son responds immediately with, he tries to do his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am, you can almost see, hear him reading it off of his hand. You know, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off short. He doesn't get to finish it. And so the father said, turns and says to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Um, so, so the son doesn't get to do his speech. The father cuts him off, you know, and the son is giving his speech. He doesn't even get what the dad is doing. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's, but he's just been embraced and kissed and the father has run to get him. So, um, the son is, is very unaware of what's actually going on. Um, he's just hopeless, you know what I mean? In that way, the father cuts off the son's speech and he will not accept him back as a hired hand. He says, go and get the best robe. The best robe in the household, who's it going to belong to? The father. So give him my, what's mine? What's only mine? Give him my robe and give him a ring. A ring in this context would be a family signet ring that you would use to, to authorize um, people to go and carry messages for you, to to represent you in business deals and stuff like that. And he says, give this kid the family ring. He's mine. He's The father here is reinstating the sonship of this kid. Um, and he says, give him sandals. Slaves and hired hands didn't get sandals to wear, but sons and children did. Um, it's only for family. So put the sandals on his feet. This father will not hear this speech about giving, being received only back as a hired hand. He says, I will only receive you as a son. And he just, just, just drowns this kid 
and compassion and favor. And he doesn't even ask for a response. Like there's not a conversation here. Where have you been? What have you done? What do you have to say for yourself? Kind of thing. He just says, he's there and he's back. He runs, the action is all on the father's side. He just gives and gives and gives and shows favor and favor and favor on this kid. He turns to the servants and says, go and get the fatted calf and kill it. If you, you prepared, you didn't prepare or kill a fatted calf for a nice dinner with your family. You didn't even do, even do that for your household. If he's killing the fatted calf, he's throwing a big party, a party big enough for the whole village. He says, so the father is not just putting a robe and a ring on to reinstate this kid to the, to the family. He's now throwing a celebration to reinstate this child to the entire community. It's a public and political re-adoption of this kid. Um, which again... If you're in his community, you probably don't like that this guy is treating this kid this way. You don't think it's the right thing to do. It's not proper. It's not what's good according to the law. And yet this that's exactly what this father is doing. It's a theological move if Jesus is identifying this father as being like God. Like, God isn't the one who denies identity with people. He doesn't restrict intimacy and favor with him from certain people or anything like that. Jesus paints a picture of God in these three stories as being disgustingly generous with people who don't deserve it. And that would be offensive to Jesus's audience. I still think it would be offensive to us today, but especially to them at the time, like that's not right. That's not what God is supposed to do. And, um, you know, in their religion at the time, it's like God is good, but God requires things. I mean, that's why all those laws are there in order for you to be respected and loved and cared for by God and therefore by the rest of the community. Like you have to do certain things and you can't do certain other things. Like their entire society is based on this idea that certain people like have honor and certain people are in the community and certain people are out. And so that's why you have people asking Jesus questions like, who is my neighbor? even when they're told to love their neighbors, you know? Um, And so Jesus is just, again, in the story, just tearing their social, political, religious structure apart right from the bottom. And the move then, um, and the action being taken, the primary characters in the story are not the, the, the people, like the stand-ins for the average person. It's God. Like it's these God characters that are always initiating the action and showing love and compassion and goodness and seeking and searching and finding and caring for things, which is really interesting. Let's go ahead and finish the story. Now his elder son was in the field. Here we go. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So the son's been working in the field, and then he hears a party. When he hears it, he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the slave replied, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. And the elder son became angry and refused to go in. So this elder son is super pissed. Um, and in a sense, according to the convention of their time, like he's he's doing the right thing. Like this, this little younger son, like should have been dead 
a long time ago. Before he even left for the other country, he should have been dead. And now he's back. And this is what's happening. Like, there's a party going. He's been working the whole time in the field. Like, he didn't even get an invite to the party, in a sense. <laughs> like, that's such an interesting detail. He's working when he gets this news. And he's and so he's the wise and respectful one from the community standards. Like, and he's angry. And so by conventional thinking, the elder son is completely justified in how, how angry he is. I think. And by conventional thinking of their time, the younger son is expected to be punished or just left to his own natural consequences. You know, think again, like, like the moral of the story should have ended a long time ago. If you don't do this to your family and your country and your religion, you know what I mean? You don't turn your back on them. Like the natural consequence should have been that he should be either working, feeding pigs and being envious of their food or dead in a ditch. You know what I mean? Somewhere. And here he's getting a party, the fatted calf, there's music and dancing. You know, like, so you can understand and empathize with how angry this elder son is. Like, the father is disrespecting and honoring the family um, by treating the younger son this way. Like, like these actions are ruining the family standing in the community. And maybe just ruining their standing economically. He's already given away a third of their household to this kid if he followed the rules for inheritance. You know? And... Which means that if they've killed the fatted calf, like that fatted calf, like that's the elder son's. That's part of his inheritance. Like from what we know, like this fatted calf may have been the one that was being saved for the elder son's wedding celebration. And here it's being spoiled on this awful, gluttonous, rebellious, younger son's return. See, you... I'm angry on behalf of the elder son, you know, a little bit. But also, here's where the elder son starts to go wrong. It's the elder son's job to reconcile younger siblings to the head of the household. So somewhere along the line, this elder son, it should have been his presumed responsibility to either set this younger son straight, so that way he didn't dishonor the family in the, in the first place, or... That if there is reconciliation going on, the elder son's job is to either at least go along with it and try and save face on behalf of the um, the head of the household in the community. But they also should have been the one to kind of go along and initiate it. Like they should have been the one who was there to kind of like barter between the younger son and the father. And yet he hears the music and dancing. He hears about the fatted calf and the intimacy shown that the son is being restored, that this father is so happy that he's back safe and sound. And he gets so angry that he refuses to go in. Which now is where the elder son goes wrong because refusing to go into the party that the father is showing, even if the father is doing it wrong, would be a grievous insult to the father. And by the same laws that they have in the Old Testament for how you treat sons who dishonor and insult you and who are rebellious. Like this kid now deserves his own beating, <laughs> the elder son. And you can empathize with why he's doing it, but he's still making the wrong choices. Like he's so angry about the favor being shown for the younger son that he ends up also doing his own dishonor to the family. And you have to think now, back to the beginning of this whole section of teaching, it starts off with these Pharisees and scribes, these religious elites, grumbling against Jesus. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus has told a very deliberately, 
like set of stories in a very deliberate order. It starts off with a hundred sheep and then down to ten coins and then down to two sons. It goes from sheep that are basically just animals to coins, which are a part of your property, to sons who are identified with you and with your community, to address these Pharisees very directly. Like in the first two stories, it's like, oh, are you going to celebrate that the sheep is back? Are you going to celebrate that this coin has been found? Now, are you going to celebrate that God is the kind of God that welcomes sinners and eats with them and is dishonorable in a sense and is so disgustingly generous that it's offensive to how we think the world works. Because in the first two stories, it ends with there's a celebration. Are you going to come? Are the friends and neighbors going to come join it? To now a father has thrown a celebration and everyone is in except for the elder son who refuses to go inside. Like now Jesus has given them their own character in the story. And he's saying, look, you were invited to be friends and neighbors, but you can make a mistake and choose to be like the elder son and to stand outside. But be careful because you say that you're doing so to protect the honor of God. But in doing so, you're actually dishonoring God because this is what God has chosen to do. Here's the last little part of the story. The father came out and began to plead with the elder son. But the son answered his father, Listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never even given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. So, Looking at it as a story, the elder son doesn't address the father appropriately. When he started to speak, he should have said father, sir, like given him some sort of title and shown respect, but he just lays right into the dad. Listen, for all these years, I, you know what I mean? Like he's so angry. He's now insulted and, cut and brought dishonor on the father. And he's jealous and he's angry and he's offended and you can hear all that vitriol, you know, this, you know, like, I have never disobeyed your convention, but you've never given me anything. This son of yours, like he's saying, I don't identify with this kid anymore, but this, this son of yours came back, you know, and it's like, you know, that, that, that cry, like you've never even given me a young goat. Like he already, you have to try and imagine what the life for this kid has been like. How has he been living as a son of this father? He says, you've never even given me, you know, a young goat. He, he already doesn't really believe like that the father is really that good. Like he doubts the father's goodness. You've never given me what I, what I've wanted so I can celebrate with my friends. I've done everything. I've been the best. I've never disobeyed your command and you've never done this 
for me, you're not good. Like he's lived in the household the whole time. And yet he's believes that he's been denied favor from the father. He's calling the father's goodness evil because he's saying you've now killed the fatted calf and you're celebrating a son who's devoured your property with prostitutes and you've never given me anything that I've wanted. It goes back to that whole blasphemy against the spirit thing. Like this son is now so angry that he's dishonoring the father and calling what might be goodness on the father's part evil. He doesn't see it. So this father responds, I had to celebrate. You've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Like, it's almost like the father's like, oh, no, didn't, didn't, don't, don't you know? Like, didn't you realize? Like, uh, this is who I am. And anything you've wanted, you could have had. If you, it's almost like he's saying like, if you wanted a young goat, if I had it, it was yours. You know, like, it's all your inheritance. It's all your goodness. It's all, all that I have is, 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 is for you. It's almost like you've been so close to goodness all along and oh my gosh, haven't you ever seen it? And so I, I, I'm just really good. And of course, because I'm good, we, we had to celebrate and listen to this turn because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He has been lost and has been found. The son had turned it on him and said, this son of yours came back. And he's saying, no, I'm not identified with you at all. And I'm not going to address you properly like a father, like I should a father. And now the father is now reconciling the elder son. And he's not just reconciling the elder son to him as the father. He's reconciling the elder son to his younger brother. This brother of yours was dead. And has come back. So we had to celebrate. So come into the house. It says he came out and began to plead with him. Come into the party, please. This is all good. Don't you see it? And that's where the story ends. It ends with this father's last pleading. The, the father declares his goodness and defends his actions as this is all good. And, and just as good as I've been to the younger brother, I'm, I've always been ready to be good as good to you. Why, why haven't you ever seen that? And so we had to celebrate. So come into the party. So it kind of ends with Jesus, this parable, puts the Pharisees in the position of the elder son in a way that he hasn't in the last two parables, but then he still leaves it open-ended on the future. We don't get an answer about what the elder brother is going to do right here when he hopefully realizes that God is good on a level that he's never, or the father is good on a level that he's never seen or understood, and he can have a young goat anytime he wants it. So what's he going to do? Is he going to be so offended about the younger brother that he doesn't go in? Or is he going to say, oh, great, you're this good. I'm going to go in, you know, like are the Pharisees then in a sense going to join Jesus in sitting and eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Like, are they going to join him in celebrating how good God is? Like, how loving God is? And that God is so good and loving and has such disgusting generosity that he's going to show favor on unrepentant people or on people who are only half-repentant, people who give, like, 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 
weak apologies for things, people who even maybe apologize only for selfish reasons like this younger son did. Like only to get what they want. Like maybe the tax collectors and sinners aren't even sitting with Jesus really like to really learn from. Maybe they're, they're, they all have selfish reasons for being there, but Jesus doesn't seem to care. He's going to be there anyway. And he's now inviting these Pharisees to join him at the table. But they have to get over the fact that God is showing so much goodness and Jesus is showing so much goodness himself on people who they don't believe deserve it, who are dishonorable, who are traitors, who are more aligned with foreigners from a foreign land, who squander what they have on dissolute living and devour property with prostitutes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they have to make a choice. Are they going to be like the elder son, you know, or are they and stay out, or are they going to go in? And Jesus seems to teach this idea throughout this whole chapter. This is the end. And he says, you know, it's like, if you can't celebrate God's goodness for people who don't deserve it, then you're not getting it either. Then you never saw God truly in the first place. Because Jesus is like, this is what God wants in the world. And if you don't think this is how it works, then, then you've never really, you thought that you were close to God. You thought you were the good son. But you've never really seen the father clearly either. Because you could have had a young goat, you know, anytime. You know what I mean? Like, you think you're in, but to be in, you have to join the party. And sometimes the party is for people you don't like. <laughs> and to join the party, it might mean that you lose respect in the community. And that you lose honor. And it might mean that you we, we have to together destroy a social system that creates barriers from people experiencing the favor of God. But that that means that you get to be with God. You get to be with the Father. And so he, it's, yeah, it's this really interesting challenge that Jesus leaves at the feet of the Pharisees and scribes of, this is what, what I think Jesus is saying, this is what I think God is like and that God is doing in the world. And if you're not okay with that, then you're not on God's side. And that's a problem for you. The problem isn't for them. You guys need to work on your own problem <laughs> and maybe realize that God is very different than what you thought. Interesting. Oh, I love this chapter so much. Um, let's jump into our lo-fi questions. So what is God like in Luke 15? Jesus tells these three parables where he has a God figure in each one. And in each one, God is actively seeking out people or things that he think, believes are, are his, that he like identifies with. Like these are my things, you know? Um, and he seeks them out and all he wants to do is be good to them and bring them home. You know, a lost sheep, you know, um, the coin, you know, the son, like God is like the shepherd. God is like this woman. God is like this father who all view these things as theirs. And they all view what's theirs as being incredibly precious to them, whether it's one sheep out of a hundred, one coin out of 10 or one son out of two, even a rebellious, awful, 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 crappy son, <laughs> you know, it, it, the, the son is, is his, you know. Um, and the love and the favor and the sense of like ownership that God has for all these things aren't based on the thing itself, like, but just on who God is. So like, does that make sense? Like these things don't, aren't, 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 aren't special. It's just a coin. It's just a sheep. It's, and it's just an awful rebellious son, you know, but because of who God is, like God views them as his own and loves them and favors them, you know, um, that's just what God is like in Luke 15, according to Jesus. Um, 
uh, you know, and, and, and in doing so, like Jesus is teaching something about God that God has no regard for systems, like for human systems of honor or status or power. Because from God's point of view and how God is going to work in the world, which, I mean, for these people hearing the story, it's like, this is what's really going on in the world. Everyone should get it equally. Like, everyone has access to God's goodness and favor. There's no, like, reward system that's based on people's performance or talent or on their merit. They can't earn it. They can't win it. They can't whatever. Like, even if they're all just, like, selfish people, or even if they're even non-actors in the story, if they're just, like, an inanimate object, like a coin to God, God is going to seek them and find them and treat them like their own and celebrate when they're back home. Um, it's almost as if God has this idea that being good in the world and making right choices and being wise and being moral and following the laws, because that doesn't help you get more favor or love. It's almost like God has this idea that those things are the good, like the good of those things are their own reward. You know, the elder son was with the father the whole time. Those 99 sheep get to be safe with the shepherd the whole time. Those nine coins that were never lost are always with the woman. And that's its own reward, you know? And so there's nothing like special that they can do to be like a better sheep or a better coin or as we find out, a better son. Like they all get everything equally. Like everything that is mine has been yours the whole time. If you wanted a goat, didn't you know that you could have asked for it? You know what I mean? Like, like that's just how God acts in the world. And yet we have so many systems in the world, especially at their time, but even still today, you know, where it's like, we decide who gets it and who doesn't. We decide who's worthy or deserving or whatever. And God just doesn't care about this. In fact, God in Luke 15 is in the ongoing mission of tearing those systems down. Because they're not good for anyone. They're not good for even the winners of those systems. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? All right. Um, people. What are people like in Luke 15? Well, people are sometimes like just sheep or coins. They're just lost. Like, it's interesting to me that Jesus in the first two parables, like, like people in the story are basically just like inanimate objects or like animals. Like, they don't even know what to do. They don't know what's best, you know? Like, they're victims of their own, like, foolishness or just limitations of being human. Like, in a sense, like, 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 even just circumstances. Like, the coin didn't do anything to be lost or to be found. They just, That's just what they are, you know what I mean? And yet, God is like a woman who will search for that coin until they just pick it up and bring it back, you know? Um, like, sometimes people just, like, get lost, which is kind of different. I mean, in the third story, it's like the son deliberately makes like really bad choices and stuff like that. But in the first two stories, at least like, like people are just sometimes lost. It's not necessarily mean that they're bad. They're just, that's just a circumstance in life, you know? Um, and, and, and it kind of reminds me of the, of the parable of the, of the seeds, like, like the seeds go everywhere and, and people are like different soils. And some of them are just, are just in a place where they, the seed doesn't grow, you know, or the seed gets snatched away. Like Jesus Lee, Jesus's view of the world, like leaves room for that to just happen because sometimes people are victims of their circumstances. And sometimes people are just like, they don't even know what, what the right thing to do is, you know? And so there's not a lot of, there's no like judgment on the sheep or the coin for being lost. 
And then even when it is about their choices, there's no judgment there either, which is really interesting. Like, like that's the sheep and the coins, but people are also, according to this parable, sometimes like the younger son, like they're selfish to the point where they're offensive to the goodness of God or the goodness of the world. Like the son tells the father, I wish you were dead. Just give me what's mine. Like sometimes people are just out for their own benefit and they don't care about the community and they don't care about who they hurt to get what they want. And that's just what, what, how they are. Like Jesus's story, like paints some people as just being like that. Some people just make terrible choices and hurt others and dishonor, you know, God or their community or whatever like that. Like Jesus in these parables, isn't painting a picture of human beings as being particularly wonderful, you know, like, like, they're not wonderful, but they're loved and they're precious to the shepherd, to the woman, to the father, to God. And they're precious not because they are wonderful in themselves, but just because that's how, what God is like. Isn't, and, that, and that's kind of interesting. And, and, and yet, because there's invitations to the friends and neighbors and because there's invitations to the elder son and to the younger son, it seems like there is this hint that even though some people are like the younger son, um, where they can be selfish and awful, awful. You know, people can be pretty crappy sometimes. Like, Jesus seems to think that people are capable of goodness. There's an invitation there to make the right choice, which is interesting. What else are people like? People are also sometimes like the elder son. They're bitter and they're resentful. And they have petty rivalries with other people. Like Jesus is just like, yeah, that's that's what, what, what people are like. That's what some of you in this room are like, Jesus is saying. You know, and sometimes people get so angry when other people get something good that they will also tear the family apart because they're so upset about it. Like the younger son tears the family apart just because he's he's selfish and foolish, you know, and unwise and stuff like that. The elder son also tears the family apart because he's so angry and resentful that he it doesn't get what the younger son gets. In Luke 15, some people can be very close to goodness their whole lives, but something about them prevents them from enjoying it and celebrating it and being generous with it themselves is really interesting. And certainly I think that's what Jesus is laying at the feet of these Pharisees. You're like an elder son who's been so close the whole time. You always get to enjoy the goodness of God. You've never had the the awfulness of being lost. And yet you turn to God and you're so petty and you're so angry and bitter that I wonder if you've ever understood the whole time just who God is and how good God is. It's really interesting. So why? Third lo-fi question, why would people keep this story? Why would they tell this story? Why would Luke record this story down from the people that told it to him? Why would Luke write it down? Why has he edited his book and had to pick which stories made the cut and which didn't? Why would he keep this one? Why would people read the book of Luke and decide that it should make it into their scriptural canon? Why would people, religious and non-religious, read this story over the last 2,000 years or still consider reading it today? Um... What I circle around to as I think about it is there's just a radical idea hidden in these stories 
that what if in the world there's no scorecard for how we do? Like, what if the basis of reality is not about winning something? I mean, okay, so think back in their context, like, it's kind of assumed that you're all religious, you know what I mean? Like like in Jesus's immediate audience, but even in the context of the, the world that Luke was writing this in, you were either, you know, your, your Greek life or your Roman life or your Hebrew life or whatever, like everyone was kind of inherently rel- religious. Religion was just mixed in with the way of the world. Um, and in all their systems of religion, there's this tendency to view God or the gods as those which you need to prove yourself to, to win them over, to receive goodness from them, to, you know, make the right sacrifices to, or to worship correctly for, sing the right songs, do the right prayers, follow the right laws, so that way you can enjoy their favor and live well in the world. What these three stories posit is that what if there isn't a scorecard? What if there's no... Nothing you have to win. What if God or the gods just, what if the world is such in the way that favor goes on everybody? And that's a radical idea for them because it's going to change the way that, I mean, that's, that's like the root idea that from their, then their whole like world of view is developed of how they see what the purpose of their life is, of how they see what their purpose of all their relationships with others are, how they orient, like the literal, like way they spend the hours of their day. Like, like what if we, they were suddenly set free from having to win God's favor over to themselves? What if then that, what does that leave them? I mean, if God is good for everybody and you don't have to win it over and you don't spend your whole life doing that, like, then you get a goat whenever you, you want it. I mean, in a sense, like, like if there, if there is a God and you, and then you believe that God is just good to everybody, whether you make huge mistakes or not, whether you're selfish or not, whether, whether even when you say you're sorry, you're doing it for the right reasons or not, whether you're lost or you're found or whatever, all of your time spent with that God is no longer about winning that God over and proving yourself to that God, but about just simply as the father invites the elder son to just to enjoy and celebrate and be reconciled to each other. Because you no longer have to squabble and fight to get God's favor. What if your whole purpose in life then was just to be left to enjoy being God's? I mean, that would be revolutionary. I mean, because your whole life then is not about trying to win God's favor for yourself by doing all the right things or worshiping the right way or doing or being good and following rules and going in and out of boundaries or whatever. And then your whole life is not about trying to correct others so that they can win. I mean, maybe you wanted to help other people. And so you were like, well, you need to win God's favor. Let me help you do it. You know, that could be an unselfish act, but it still is rooted in this worldview of we all have to be doing the right thing. Otherwise it's going to get bad. You know what I mean? And what if you didn't have to spend your life trying to correct other people so they can experience God's goodness? And what if then that also meant that you didn't have to spend your life defending God? I mean, let's keep in mind, 
that these stories come from a time and a culture where people fought wars in order to win God's favor. And what if they could just say, we don't have to do that anymore? You know what I mean? Or even in interreligious debates, you know, like everywhere Jesus goes, there's a religious debate. And what if they could just say, I don't have to defend God anymore. I don't have to be like a policeman you know, going around and making sure all the rules are enforced. Like, I don't have to protect us in our community from losing the favor of God. I no longer have to be like an, like one song said, an ant trying to protect my dinosaur friend. What if we don't have to be afraid of losing God's favor any longer? That would set a community free for a new purpose, to be the people who simply sit and celebrate the favor of God when they see it being experienced. And also, I think, this isn't like necessarily inherent in the text, but I think as they carry these stories around, that would also help them to celebrate the favor and goodness of God, but also to mourn the lostness of a lot of people who don't see the goodness or aren't experiencing the favor of God in the moment to freely sit and mourn with them, as opposed to seeing that happening and feeling like we need to fix it or correct it or protect it or whatever. You know, to help those people earn it, you could just sit with them and be like, yeah, sometimes a tower falls over and people die. Isn't that sad? It's not about trying to figure out what we need to do to win God's favor back, but we can just kind of mourn with that. Like, if a community carries these stories, that's going to create them to be a very different kind of community. And the world at the time, and I would say the world today, but we can get into that in the kitchen episode, doesn't need more stories of the old God or the old gods. Like the grasshopper ant parable already takes care of that. Like the story could have ended there and just taught people, look, if you don't do it right, you're going to die, you know, or if you don't do it right, God is going to be upset. Or if you don't do it right, you're out of the community. You know what I mean? The Pharisees are already living an embodiment of, of, of that old story. But if Jesus here is teaching things about God that make her seem like something very different than they thought, like, like one who is way more freely generous and favorous and loving, that's a new story and a new way of looking at God. And when I say new, don't, don't hear me saying that, that God isn't present in the older stories somewhere, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Cause Jesus, I don't think is, is necessarily saying anything totally new. You can, I mean, you, as someone who loves the Bible, I believe you can read the old Testament and see the God that Jesus presents. Um, but the people weren't living like that was, who God was. And so Jesus is kind of awakening them to become a people and therefore become a community and to become a movement within the world that has a new way forward because the old way is pervasive, but isn't working and isn't really what's true. I mean, if this story that Jesus presents here, this idea of God and the world becomes one of their central stories, if Luke 15 becomes like one of the few stories that's collected in the book of Luke, which is essentially what it is, that's and if this story is the one that you read together to decide this is who God is most and this is what God is inviting us to, like that's going to define and shape your community. So to be something 
very radically different in the world from so many other communities or political parties or religious, you know, groups or something like that in the world. And your central mission is not going to be, we are going to train people up to go win in this world. And we are going to train people up to go be right in this world. And we are going to train people up to go dominate and, and get favor and to conquer or to colonize. You know what I mean? Like, like that whole game is just done. You don't have to. Our job is just to celebrate and to care and to reconcile people to each other and to the Father. To invite them to wake up and enjoy the goodness that's all around them, and to seek out those who aren't experiencing God's favor so that they might experience what we've already found. You know what I mean? Like, it's a community of favor as opposed to a community of fear, a community of anger, a community of bitterness, a community of selfishness and power hungriness, a community obsessed with its own honor in the world. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Christian early church is they were not obsessed with their own honor at all. Like they were, you know, other places in the New Testament talk about how we're going to seem like fools to the rest of the world when they see what we're doing. And maybe that's why they keep these stories around, to keep them foolish in a way that actually changes the world because it actually presents something new and different, something that sets people free. If they hear these stories and stories over and over again, maybe, just maybe, it'll sink into their hearts and it will set them free from the old way of viewing the world and of viewing God. And maybe they just desperately wanted to be set free from the old way. And maybe in the kitchen, that's a good question for us is, don't we all want to be set free from the old way? This has been a long episode, but it's been good, you guys. I'm so glad to be back. We'll hopefully get a kitchen episode up in the next few days. Um, I'm out of time to record because i got to go pick up my kid from school. And then we have a harvest. Not a harvest. Um, that's that's the pagan thing that churches do instead of Halloween. Um, there's a like a Halloween like fall festival thing at a school tonight. And um, my, my kid is at the age of kindergarten, which is everything is super cute. So it's going to be fun. Um, so hopefully maybe, maybe in a few days on Sunday, maybe I'll get to sit down and, um, do the kitchen episode and then we'll jump into right Luke 16. I'm going to work really hard to, to protect my time, uh, to make this, um, happen because it's good for me. I hope it's good for you. If it is good for you and you like what we're doing, please let me know. It, it's, it's encouraging to, to know that, that there's people out there who are listening and who like it. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. I'm smiling. It's good to end an episode with a smile. So take care. Enjoy fall. All right, bye. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lo-fi at kevinlester.net, and that's lo-fi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lo-fi kevin. 
with no dash again. So at Lo-Fi Kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.